Zada Hunsade ne TVO Radiri Hoenata. You are listening to a TVO podcast. Sovereignty is the ability for a people to make their own decisions, to speak and be heard. For indigenous people battling generations of colonization, we express our sovereignty in many different ways. Through living our lives as our authentic indigenous selves, through our leadership, stories, and teachings, and through our art. Join us, Chris Beaver and Shelby Lisk, on the art of sovereignty. In each episode, we explore the history and lives of First Nations artists who would not let others define them. They fought against the currents and used their work and their influence to break barriers and bring Indigenous perspectives to the forefront. Sego Sewagwegon, Shelby Yungyats, Liste Waxanazre, Geningehaga Niwakunjodon, Danon Waganyanton. I'm Shelby Lisk, a Ganyangehaga artist and journalist from Tyndanaga Mohawk Territory. From TVO Podcasts, this is The Art of Sovereignty. Growing up, Bonnie Devine's grandfather warned her to stay away from the bright yellow piles of powder in her community. I was five or six years old, driving with my grandpa, traveling east on Highway 17, just outside of Serpent River First Nation. We came around the bend and there, right by the side of the highway, were these great big piles of yellow powder, these glowing, almost vibrating triangles, such a strange, unnatural color of yellow, so vibrant, set against this black burned landscape. Wow, I was dazzled by them. Of course, I asked my grandpa what those were. He hesitated. He wouldn't tell me. I remember lying in my bed that night thinking to myself, I'm going to find out what those are. I'm going to tell about them. The memory of the yellow piles remained tucked away in the back of Bonnie's mind until years later, when those images started to jump from her subconscious and onto the pages of her drawings. Through her art practice, Bonnie pursued the questions that tugged at her mind that day in her grandfather's pickup truck, maintaining a great curiosity about the world and a love for being Anishinaabe, all of which led her to become the first tenured Indigenous professor at the Ontario College of Art and Design and the founding chair of the school's Indigenous Visual Culture Program. Her art, writing, teaching, and curating have impacted generations of students and artists. Despite all this and the trail that she blazed, I wasn't taught about her in my fine arts program. But then one day I read about an artist who took her thesis notes and made them into a canoe. That was my first introduction to Bonnie Devine. I just remember thinking, how bad ass. Bonnie continues to have an active practice. I spoke with her between painting sessions. Sometimes she'd arrive in an artist's smock, her hair pinned back, traces of paint on her fingers, She was painting a mural at the McMichael Gallery in Kleinberg, Ontario, over the course of several months. Chris and I even got to visit her while she was working there. We watched her meticulously paint each pigment in the hair of a deer while she told us stories. You'd never know how busy she is by how generous she is with her time. Bonnie has a gift, a way of caring herself that makes you feel important, in a way only Indigenous women can do. And she certainly has the gift of storytelling. 
I was mostly raised in Toronto. My early childhood was spent in Northern Ontario on a beautiful river that runs down the Canadian Shield and empties into Lake Huron. That river's name is the Serpent River. I'm a member of the Serpent River Anishinaabeg Nation, where my relatives and spiritual roots remain. It's where I identify with most strongly. Bonnie defines her work as sculpture, but it's not what you might think. Her materials include woven grass, wood, rocks, paper, fabric, hide, and she often makes site-specific work, gathering materials, weaving them into stories, then returning them to the land after their life in the gallery. Bonnie describes it as borrowing some time of that material. When people think of sculpture, they think of stone carving or wood carving, some sort of hard surfaced intervention with a material and some sort of long lasting, durable object. My art is the opposite of that. I am interested in pliable materials, in materials that tend to change over time. So there's not the notion of eternal, frozen in space and time objecthood. I'm very interested in the way that materials and objects interact with their environment and the way that they respond to moisture, to adversity, to bad handling, to care, to love, to my hands, to the hands of other people. I'm just really interested in that intersection between object and space. Bonnie was greatly influenced by her grandparents as a child. She watched as they gave materials renewed lives or returned elements to the earth. They taught her respect for the land and how to honor all life. Both of my grandparents were very skilled with their hands. My grandpa was a trapper. My grandmother sewed. She made baskets and she prepared everything she knitted and I would watch her turn scraps of stuff into a structure and then that structure became something that we used and when that structure broke down she would refix it and turn it into something else. There was this constant sense that things continue but that they also change That's my beef with sculpture. Sculpture tends to turn things into inanimate objects. The kind of work that I saw my grandparents practice was actually retaining the animate quality of the material so that it continued to, you know, have something to say and something to do and and a way to be part of our lives. For Bonnie, it's not just about what the materials are, but where they come from. There's another piece that I made at the AGO called Battle for the Woodlands that talks about how the Great Lakes represent something far more profound than marks on a map, that they are deeply ingrained in the traditions and cultures of the Great Lakes woodlands people, and how we as a people have fought and continue to fight to keep that place safe. Flowing across the walls of the Art Gallery of Ontario 
the battle for the woodlands depicts a multitude of animals and rivers pouring off the map of Bonnie's pre-colonial homeland. The images surround three woven figures standing in the center of the room. There were three figures that were woven out of seagrass and sticks, twigs that I had gathered in three different places. So one, I went up to Serpent River and gathered. That became one of the figures. Another one came from Walpool Island on the Detroit River. And the third one came from the Don River Valley. While many view Bonnie's work as political, for her, it is personal. I think that my work has been my own personal attempt to explain what I love. So not really that political when it comes right down to it. I love the fact that I'm Anishinaabe, and I love it that I have the memories that I have of seeing people working in relation to the land and in relation to the water. I feel very privileged about that because I know that a lot of younger people don't have that direct experience. So I think my work is all about trying to show that there is a way to translate that into contemporary life. There is a way to talk about those values and practices that my grandparents and great-grandparents had and bring that forward, transformed for sure, but in its essence, the same. The same thread of truth, I feel, runs through it. There are some times that you can feel them beside you. You can feel that what you are doing is connected to something deeper and bigger than yourself and that you are in some ways enacting the endurance and strength of that and it is expressing itself through you. Bonnie returned to university as a mature student to pursue a master's degree. She didn't know it at the time, but those mysterious yellow piles her grandfather warned her about were about to put themselves at the center of her studies. I felt completely unprepared and inadequate to the task of preparing a master's thesis. Because of that, my working methods all left me. I became immobilized. My work got really small. As she struggled with what to do, Bonnie set an exercise for herself to make one small drawing every day. That first day, the drawing that I made was of a yellow triangle surrounded by black, burned-out trees. I wasn't sure where that had come from or what it was I was remembering, and I made another drawing really fast, and it was another yellow triangle. It took me about four days, and I remembered. But I remembered that time when I saw those things and the way that they looked and how they glowed and how beautiful they were, actually. As soon as I realized what they were, I knew what my thesis was going to be about. Bonnie dove into her research, devouring historical accounts, treaties, scientific documents, government paperwork, and economic reports. What some people call research, Bonnie calls finding the particular magic of something. At the very beginning, I wasn't thinking that those drawings would be part of the thesis. I was still thinking about them as a kind of 
self-healing tool that would bring me to the real thing that I wanted to do. In the back of my mind, I still had this idea that the thesis had to be bigger than these little drawings. And, and there must be something more scholarly and blah, 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 all of that. But in the end, the drawings kind of organized themselves into three books. The trilogy. At this time, Bonnie took a trip back up north to see her uncle. They were celebrating a wedding anniversary. During the party, her uncle took her aside and shared a story. Bonnie couldn't believe how it connected to her work. When he was a very young kid, his dad, my grandpa, took him for a vision quest in the hills. My uncle Art at that time didn't know I was working on this work about the uranium. He hadn't seen the drawings. He didn't know that story about grandpa and me driving in the truck. He didn't know any of that. Spontaneously and just out of the blue, he decided to tell me this story about when he was taken up in the highlands, just past Elliott Lake. This would have been in the 1940s and was put out too fast by my grandfather. And so that became the second part of the trilogy was my Uncle Art's story and how that tied into the eventual discovery of uranium in that very place where those ceremonies had been practiced for millennia. After all the years of wondering and carrying this information around at the back of her mind, Bonnie learned the truth about those yellow triangles. They were piles of sulfuric acid lying raw right on the ground. Very caustic, corrosive stuff. Why would they put those in the middle of a village where people were living, where children were playing? One thing my grandpa had said on that day was, don't go and play there. You stay away from those piles. At the same time that I found out what they were, I discovered what they were for. Sulfuric acid was an important ingredient in the smelting and the refining of uranium ore. Around that time that I first saw those domes of yellow sulfur, they had discovered uranium at Elliott Lake about 30 kilometers north of the Serpent River First Nation. You and I don't have shells to crawl into like Bert the Turtle, so we have to cover up in our own way. First, you duck, and then you cover. And very tightly, you cover the back of your neck and your face. Duck and cover underneath a table or desk or anything else close by. During the Cold War, duck and cover drills were implemented by frantic governments. Instructional videos were played in schools across North America. Bonnie even remembers being sent home with a form reading, In the event of a nuclear attack, what would you like us to do with your child? Check the box that applies. Number one. If there is an air raid, please send my child home. Number two, if there is an air raid, please shelter my child in the school basement. The fear of nuclear annihilation drove countries on both sides of the Iron Curtain to stock up on their atomic arsenals. Can you guess where the materials came from to make so many of those nuclear weapons? Canada supplied uranium to its allies during the Cold War. Uranium is the key ingredient in nuclear weapons. And uranium mining created those piles of raw sulfuric acid in Bonnie's community. You have to crush the ore 
then you make a slurry out of this sulfuric acid in water and you soak that crushed ore. That causes the uranium ore to leach out and you can skim that away and that's what's called yellow cake. But in the process of crushing that ore, you are releasing the atomic decay. It's not happening internally inside the rocket. It starts happening in the air. So you're creating airborne contaminants. The Cutler Acid Plant in Serpent River First Nation opened in 1957. Six years later, it closed, leaving a trail of pollution and contamination. Instead of cleaning up the site, the federal government used it as a training ground for the Royal Canadian Engineers. They came in to clean up, which meant they blew up the remaining buildings abandoned by the company, sending debris into a wider area and spreading toxic waste all over the reserve. The discovery of uranium was devastating. Once the genie's out of the bottle, you can't put it back in. It's the old cliche. Men who worked at the plant had a higher occurrence of bronchitis. Community members reported skin and eye irritations and rashes on children from swimming in the nearby bay. One study found an increase in pregnancy loss as a result of the uranium mining. The wind will burn holes in clothing that's hung out to dry on laundry day. The first powwow ground that uh, Serpent River made was on the ruins of the old sulfuric acid plant. The dancers would dance there, and after three days of dancing, they would have holes in their moccasins from the acid in the, in the ground. While the dangers of uranium mining weren't fully understood at the time, for many, the mine was seen as a strategic resource, a triumph for the industry, an economic Boom. It wasn't a gold rush, it was, it was a uranium rush. It didn't last long, but while it lasted, the place was booming. So I was very interested in how was it that the government of Ontario and the government of Canada created the right for themselves to explore in this way and to extract in this way on what really was treaty land. How did that happen? The history of uranium discovery at Elliott Lake, the science behind the extraction process, and its impacts on the community filled the pages of Bonnie's master's notes. After successfully presenting her thesis, Bonnie packed up the paper and the many pages of notes and documents in a box. For two years, she kept this box of notes tucked under her desk. Every few days, she would see the box and wonder to herself, what's so useful about a master's thesis anyway? I said to myself, well... The next garbage day, I will put this box of notes up with the garbage. That'll be a good thing. And then I had a dream. I saw six warriors running through tall grass. They had something heavy and white. They were carrying above their heads. They ran right over me. They lifted up the thing they were carrying high enough that it didn't hurt me at all. I looked up under and I saw that it was a canoe and also that it had writing all over it. Rows and rows of writing interspersed occasionally with drawings, glyphs and symbols and things. 
When I woke up, I realized that I wasn't to throw that box of notes away. I was to make something useful out of them. I decided to sew them together and make a canoe. For Bonnie, this was a continuation of the practice she observed from her grandparents. Once an item has reached the end of its use, it can be reformed into having a new use, a new life. By transforming those documents into a canoe, she brings them back to their original intent. They're living documents, and it goes back to this existential question. What is being? What is alive? And what I was interested in was, how can I make this paper live? And to make it into a canoe, because canoes are magical beings as well. eh? They have a kind of tension within them. It's built into their structure. It's part of their physics. And I didn't know that until I built one out of paper. It didn't matter what you made that canoe out of. If you followed the instructions properly to the letter, it would have flexibility and strength. It would be deft. It would be smart. It would actually be alive. I just used paper, needle, and thread. Watercolor paper is a little bit stiffer. I laminated it together to make it several layers thick, so it would even be more stiff. And this canoe is 16 feet long, and it is now, what, 20 years old? I saw it not long ago, and it's still beautiful and strong. Transforming things through your hands and with the agency of your imagination imbues them with life and energy, and they, in return, imbue you with life and energy. And and so that's the beauty of art making. When Bonnie went back to her community, she was a little nervous to share what her thesis had become. I can't remember how I got around to telling them about the thesis, but they understood right away. When I said I wanted to make something useful out of my thesis, they all laughed. Everyone in the, it was at the library in Serpent River. All of the people in the library understood right away what I was saying. A thesis has no real use value, but a canoe is a valuable, valuable thing. And to know how to make a canoe is a gift. It is a question of value. What is of value to us? And what will give us the heart and the strength to move forward? Well, the thesis won't give any of those things. But a canoe? Yeah. Art has always been a part of Indigenous life. From pictographs and petroglyphs to wampum belts and woven grass. Art has been used in our communities to tell the world and each other who we are and what we hold as important. The word for art in Anishinaabe Moan is a conflation of the words drawing and writing. Bonnie says it translates to something like telling. I think it's learning. I think it's communication. The idea that certain parts of our tradition are more precious than the individuals who pass them on, that the knowledge itself is the most important thing. Everyone will write that story or tell that story or sing that song a little differently, but the song itself is enduring because of everyone's participation in it. 
I see the artist that way. We're not really the originators of any of the stuff that we do. Everybody wants to be an original, but really it's not the artist that's important. It is this muscle of culture that is exerting itself through the generations and affirming its presence and speaking through the works. For me, Bonnie's art and her life embody this. She carries with her the importance of responsibility to ourselves, to our stories, to our communities, to the next generation. And she shares her stories and teachings generously. Bonnie was hired by the Ontario College of Art and Design in 2008, becoming the first Indigenous professor hired in a tenure-track position in the school's history. She was tasked to help develop a visual arts program tailored specifically to Indigenous students. She wanted to teach her students about community responsibility and how to be critical thinkers in the art world. We started building curriculum right away. We offered a minor two years after I started and then two or three years after that, we offered a major. You can go to OCAD and get a major in Indigenous visual culture. I saw it as an offshoot of my installation work. All of those values that had brought up from my own practice and also that I had learned. We started talking about critical issues in contemporary Indigenous First Nations art. And that brought us to questioning, what are the conditions under which this work was made? And this leads us to talk in really fruitful ways to youth about where they can put their creative energy in a way that feeds the community and helps the community to get on its feet and move forward. How can we mobilize that so that we are not merely instruments or the results of colonialism, but that we realize ourselves as independent entities who have certain goals and a certain direction we want to move in as a group. Bonnie continued this work at OCAD for 11 years. Now, having forged a path for Indigenous students and faculty, she is content to leave things to the next generation and focus on her art making. If there is an artist out there whose work embodies the spirit that all things change, it is Bonnie Divine. These young artists are coming and as fast as you can write them down, like this is what this is and this is what that, and this is, they're breaking the rules. This is so important because what it means is that our culture is alive. Our culture has survived. If you'd like to see the images referred to in this episode, check out the links in the show notes. The Art of Sovereignty is written and hosted by Chris Beaver and Shelby Lisk. Produced by Ozzy Michelin and Katie O'Connor. Edited by Chris Beaver, with assistance from Matthew O'Mara. Lori Few is the executive producer for Digital at TVO. Production assistance from Jonathan Hallowell, Nikki Ashworth, and Albert Wisco. Music by Bedtracks. We'd like to thank the artists and curators who made time to speak with us for the series. Special thanks to the Art Gallery of Peterborough, the Powerplant Gallery, Carleton University, and especially Wanda Nanabush and the Art Gallery of Ontario.